As we've looked at the first 18 verses of um, the Gospel of John, which is known as the prologue, um, last week we saw that the Gospel writer, and also two weeks earlier with Scott, um, when Scott spoke, we saw that the Gospel writer John is painting a picture of um, Jesus uh, using titles like the Word, the Light, the Life, um, the Truth. Um, and um, he's also giving us a snap or an insight into the storyline. He's preparing us for what's ahead. And so far we've learned that Jesus, he is the Word. He's the eternal Word, the internal logic of God. He's the one through whom God uh, created the universe. And he is also the light that shines in the darkness. He shines in the darkness of our um, doubt, of, of our despair and of, of death itself, um, giving us new life. And today we hit verse 14, and which is probably perhaps the centerpiece, the most exciting, breathtaking moment in the introduction of the Gospel of John. Um, and it begins, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so I'm going to have four things to say about that this morning. Um, I'm going to say that that verse, the significance of the Word made flesh, that it's scandalous, that um, the Word made flesh is grace, the Word made flesh is truth, the Word made flesh is glorious. Scandalous, grace, truth, glorious. The Word made flesh is scandalous. There are many ideas that are scandalous. Uh, we actually have in Australia a festival of dangerous ideas. Um, these are ideas that perhaps might cause outrage to some because they're so out there that they'll um, that if they were to come true, they would change our world. Um, in Australia, we have a, um, oh, sorry. In the 2015 Australian festival, um, Naomi Klein, for example, talked about how we've currently got war refugees. But just you look out for when we have climate refugees, you won't know what's hit you. Um, Martin Ford said uh, your white-collar jobs are all under threat. They're all going to be automated, so there's going to be the end of the middle class coming soon. Um, there was a, a Chinese speaker, Muron um, Shukan, who, who said, don't kid yourself about China, the Chinese government. They really are spying on people and shutting people down in their voice, uh, silencing people's voices. Um, you know, so these are all ideas that will look out if you say these sort of things in public. Well, listen to this idea. This idea is not only dangerous, it's scandalous. The divine word, the infinite, powerful logic of God that created the universe, this reason that controls the order of everything, became flesh and blood, and we have seen him with our own eyes. That is a scandalous idea. And I actually think that if you put it in the dangerous ideas, even today, it would still be considered worthy of that conference. John actually wrote, we have seen his glory. Not only me, but many of my family and friends saw him. Now, I've seen lots of amazing things in my 41 years. I actually saw the Queen once. On, back in 1985, on the Ivan and Grammar uh, camp to Echuca, combined with Ivan and Girls Grammar, might, might say, um, not only did we see girls for the first time, but we actually saw Halley's Comet. We got up early and we saw Halley's Comet, and that was a big, exciting thing for that year. I saw, you know, both my children being born. But imagine seeing the divine logic, the divine word, the Son of God, 
made into flesh and blood, a real human being. Imagine seeing that, Jesus Christ. Well, John saw him and he said he was glorious. Now, hang on, you might think, John, did you actually see him? Did you actually see him? I mean, what you're really saying, isn't it like you have this kind of vibe, a spiritual vibe and your, your heart sort of saw him? You know, it's like, I, I sense you here. No, this was physical sight. It wasn't a sensation that John and the other disciples got. The word became an actual man and was seen by actual eyeballs. And John is saying, if you want to see uh, what this creating word is like, which is the word that's been used all through the first 18 verses of Gospel of John, if you want to see this capital W word, the controlling reason of the universe, look at Jesus. Now, the reason this is scandalous is because in the Greek world, Greek philosophical world, which was kind of the, the popular dominant thought at the time, uh, this is a bombshell because um, in Greek thinking, well, first of all, you know, even Augustine said that, you know, he's read all the Greek philosophies. He'd never seen an idea like this before. Um, this claim that the word, because they had a concept, the Greek philosophers had this concept of the word too. They knew about it. They hadn't never come up with this idea that the word became flesh. Uh, and it was, it was a scandal because they didn't come up with that idea because they actually had this fundamental belief that God is holy and flesh is sinful and, and the earth and, and the, things in the, the physical things in the world are, are sinful. So God wouldn't actually want to even come and touch human beings. And so some of the philosophers had this idea that God controls the universe with intermediaries so that he doesn't actually get poisoned. Um, you know, the, that was, uh, the Greek philosopher Philo believed God could never descend. Even um, it extended into Roman thought. The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius taught that the flesh should be despised because it's corrupted. Um, so this idea that the, the word, the divine word, became flesh does not compute. It, it needs to be featured in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It's so out there. Um, this, this idea that the holy God would become bonded with what they understood to be evil. What? what? Well, of course, the philosophical thought was wrong, wasn't it? There is no doubt that the claim that, that God has become a human being, that he's moved from eternal to, to existence to a moment in time, this was out there. It was so out there and scandalous and dangerous that even many Christians couldn't believe it. So there was a breakaway group, uh, uh, like a heresy group called the Docetists. And, you know, they're trying to protect Jesus and what people think of him. They, and they just could not accept that he really was a human being. And they, they said, actually, what he is, I mean, he just looks like it, but it's just an illusion. Um, there's, there's God, but when, when we all saw him, or when the apostles saw him, the disciples and the people of the time saw him, they were seeing like a mask. But he wasn't really human flesh. But they were, you know, this is, that, that, they were completely wrong. John is saying the exact opposite of that. Today, you know, this idea that the word became flesh or that God um, became a human being is still a scandal, but it's a scandal in reverse because um, you, you, people are happy to accept that Jesus was a human being and a man, but that he's God? Nah. Uh, 
The question for people today is not, has God become a man, but could a man be God? John shows us explicitly that the word became physical flesh. And he wasn't a mutant either. He wasn't a God-man mutant. It's not like if you looked at his DNA, there'd be some divine DNAs and some man DNA mixed together. He's not half man, half God. He's one person with two natures. Theologians have a fancy word for this, the hypostatic union. They're not mixed together like Milo and milk. Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, without loss of separate identity. He doesn't lose his divine identity. He doesn't lose his human identity. So you can't say he is not fully God because he's a half human. No, he is fully God. And you can't say he's not fully human because uh, his humanity has been blurred with his divinity. No, he's fully human as well. Well, what is Jesus like, this word made flesh, fully God and fully human? The word made flesh is grace, the verse says. Second half of verse 14 says, We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Grace is kindness and love and blessedness that you receive that is completely undeserved. Grace is something beautiful that comes to you that you you couldn't get yourself. And it's my conviction that even in the postmodern secular world of Melbourne that everyone experiences grace, even though they may not realise it. How can this be the case, you say? Well, everyone does... I don't think they use a label. Everyone has the sensation that sometimes they get better than they deserve. People have a stroke, for example, find themselves in hospital... And the community rallies around them. You get sacked from your job and friends ring you up and support you and, 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 and you know, hang out with you and just console you. You suffer trauma and un- unexpected strangers are there for you. After the Burke Street tragedy, there was all these articles in the newspaper about people being so moved by the strangers who came up and helped This is grace. And when this happens, you feel accepted and you feel loved in a way that you didn't before. And for many people, they are drawn towards the transcendent after this experience of grace. They don't necessarily start saying, I'm a Christian, but they say, they look up and they think, I feel like I'm part of a big universe. I feel like there's something more here. I'm saying that grace makes you hyper-aware that you're part of a bigger story and it makes you think about the meaning of life. American um, public theologian Paul Tillich has a powerful essay called The Shaking of the Foundations and he describes grace. Let me read a bit for you. He says, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, our lack of direction and and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when year after year the, the longing for perfection of life does not appear. When old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, 
when despair destroys all joy and courage, sometimes at that moment, a wave of light breaks into your darkness and it is through. It is though a voice was saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you and in the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps you will do much you will do much later. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform for anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. After such an experience, we may not be better than before. We may not believe more than before, but everything is transformed. Nothing is demanded of this experience. No religious or moral intellectual presupposition. Nothing but just acceptance. A few days ago, I was uh, having lunch with a, a friend of mine uh, who's also an Anglican minister, Megan Curlis Gibson. Some of you know her. And um, incidentally, she'll be coming to preach later in the year a couple of times. And she's now the Ivanhoe Girls Grammar chaplain. And um, we've known each other since undergraduate year, since the 90s, I think. So we know each other pretty well. And we were talking about some of our mutual friends who have been in ministry, who have given up ministry and even given up being a Christian. And she said to me, so Peter, how have you lasted? And I just blurted out without even, you know, sometimes you say something, it's like your subconscious just pierces through and you haven't had time to think of the answer. And I said, it's definitely a case of unbelievable grace. That was my answer. And I was surprised at how quickly and emphatically that came out. But my answer was coming from a deep awareness of not feeling like I deserved life the way it's panned out, uh, an awareness that um, I don't know how and why God has given me what I've, I've received in my life in terms of not just material possessions but relationships and experiences and my ministry. Some of you have known me for a really long time, so you'll know the Peter of 25 years ago, the Peter of 35 years ago, some of you, the Peter of 10 years ago. And can I tell you, when I first went into paid ministry back in 2000, you know, I was coming out of undergraduate at Melbourne Uni and I was just given this job because I had a few skills in the musical area and I could sort of, you know, I don't know, I fitted the brief somehow, but I had no training. I had never been to Bible college, never been trained in leadership or anything like that, and I was just thrown in. Now you're working in the church. And can I just say, I was all over the show. I was a fool back then. You know, I had no idea. I hadn't thought through things clearly. And I have no idea how I lasted through those first few years, um, except for unbelievable grace. God in his divine grace, I think, held me up, disciplined me, taught me hard but loving lessons along the way, and still does to this day. So I'm not claiming that today you see perfection at all. Uh, I'm a work in progress, as we all are. But this is grace. And as Paul Tillich explained, I just need to accept it and see the world in a new way as a result. And because I'm a Christian, I know where the grace comes from. It's not just of, you know, grace from nowhere. It's grace from God. And Paul Tillich goes on to push that line. And I think it is a really good habit for us as Christians um, to learn to see God's grace in our life. 
even if you're not a Christian, maybe just to spend some time meditating and thinking, what kind of grace have I experienced in my life? Because I find often when I talk to people, they don't even um, realise, see the grace in their life. Uh, often people come to me and they're feeling sad about their life. Um, and when I'm talking to them, as they, things unfold, I see actually there's so much grace in their life, so many examples of people surrounding them in, in love. I remember one guy from years ago who, when he first arrived at church, not, not here, um, he, he came with a visibly lonely, you know, his face was downcast, he couldn't look me in the eye, and, he, and, he, and he, I worked out pretty quickly he had no friends, and he didn't have friends. Even his family were not um, loving him. And he was, you know, in his 20s. Anyway, he, he joined church, and over, over several years, four or five years, he gradually formed friendships and relationships and experienced love. And he, he'd already been a Christian. Um, but, 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 but over those five years, also his face changed. And the smile came on his face. And, and he visibly looked like a loved person. But then one day he came to me. I remember we were talking and he was, he was sort of saying he didn't feel like he had any friends still. He was still recounting that, that sort of cassette playing in his head. And actually, I had to point out to him, actually, you're surrounded by all these people who love you. And he, and he came to that realisation, yeah, that he was actually taking for granted all these amazing things, all this work that God had done in his life. The whole profound point of grace is that God loves and accepts you whether or not you realise it. And he shows it in all kinds of different beautiful ways. In, um, often ministers quote ancient Greek. I'm now going to tell you about modern Greek. Um, grace... Um, in modern Greek, translates to charm. And what we see in grace is God's charm. And so when we say that the word made flesh is grace, personified, we see in Jesus the charm of God. And this plays out in the Gospel of John as we go on to read it. Uh, Very quickly we soon see Jesus' charm, his grace, when um, he saves the face of the groom at the wedding banquet because the wine runs out and Jesus turns the water into wine. Very simple for Jesus to do, um, but gracious love. Um, we see it at the well when Jesus meets the socially outcast Samaritan woman whose life is in a mess and he tells her about you know, God and her life is transformed and gives, he gives her a new path and she runs off and tells people. Um, we see it when he was at the pool of Bethesda and, and he... Uh, uh, he heals the, the man who's been lame for 38 years, you know, and he stands up and walks. This is the grace of God personified in Jesus, the charm of God. But, the, but what, see, the thing is, he doesn't just show grace. He actually is grace. The point of John 1.14 is that the word is the personification of pure divine grace. And we see this grace most obviously in the glory of the cross. Because humanity did not deserve uh, God coming to live and die on the cross for us. This was an act of pure grace on God's behalf. The word made flesh is grace. But the word made flesh is also truth. Verse 14b says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, like he embodies and communicates grace, he embodies and communicates truth as well. Um, Jesus, the word is truth, and he's the message in the person. 
And the Gospel of John brings this word truth up all through the Gospel. I love talking about ideas, but I know that many people don't like talking about ideas. They'd rather be concrete and show examples. Um, And what we have in, in Jesus is not just the idea of God's love and grace and truth. We actually have an example. We have the, the, the God's actual truth in Jesus. Um, he's what we look at. If I point to Jesus, you can see God's beauty. It's not an abstract idea. It's a physical reality. Centuries before Jesus came, Greek philosophers argued about the existence of God and debated various difficult ideas Concepts that were hard to understand. But when the word became flesh, he settled all those arguments with a real person. It's far easier to understand. Jesus didn't come just to talk about God. He came to show people what God is like so that even little kids can understand and great philosophers can understand and everyone in between. Being in relationship with Jesus means to be in relationship with the truth of God. Jesus told his disciples if they continue with him, they would know the truth. Chapter 8, verse 31. In the shocking post-Brexit analysis um, in the UK, the British Conservative uh, politician Michael Gove said a famous line uh, that the people were sick of the experts. And if you, and if you analyse what he's saying, he's not far off <coughs> um, saying that two plus two doesn't necessarily equal five anymore. We, we don't need to hear the experts tell us that it equals four. It might equal five. We don't know. Uh, there was a Guardian article pointing this out, saying, you, you know, the, the winning of Brexit and this claim that, that there's been a rejection of the experts sounds kind of like what you read about in uh, George Orwell's 1984, the kind of politicians playing around with truth removing the experts. And in this article in The Guardian, they said this. In the interrogation scene in 1984, this is the most appalling moment. Before now, we read it as a ludicrous indictment of the rejection of reality. Surely we conclude um, the party itself must know that two plus two equals four. Science, machines all depend on it. In 1984, the elite personified by this character, O'Brien, foster and control this willingness to believe one thing one day and one thing another. Now it seems a party itself may believe the lie. Um, uh, as Orwell writes, science in the old sense has almost ceased to exist. Um, and the, you know, in 1904, this idea of newspeak, um, there is no work, word for science anymore in newspeak, no word for science. And of course, in the last few weeks since the inauguration of Trump and all the stuff that's happened, um, 1984, the book has been booming in the sales on Amazon. People are reading it again. Um, people are interested in what, how, what it means to live in a world where the truth is manipulated. Um, uh, Trump shuts down news outlets if he doesn't like them by, or he shuts their, them down in the, in the press meetings by um, dismissing them as fake news. Now more than ever, it feels like we need a teacher that is not doing doublespeak or newspeak, who's not saying two plus two equals five. We need a saviour who at the crossroads of life points us in the right direction. We need a divine pastor who when we're trying to work out what moral decisions to make, shows us what moral decision to make, to choose wisely. We need a voice from heaven who in the, in the swirling noise of the many voices 
that demand our allegiance, tells us what to believe. Jesus and embodies and communicates the truth. He is that one. And even when Jesus ascends in his body, he leaves us the spirit of all truth. That he doesn't just leave us a book of instructions and sermons. We're not stuck with some complicated textbook to work out his will and to understand him. To the contrary, today, even today, we can ask Jesus what to do for, this, for his spirit is with us throughout our lives. He speaks to us through the scriptures. He speaks to us in our heart. So Christian faith is not a leap into the unknown. That to, to say that is to dismiss the God of the universe who actually became flesh. Christian faith is a leap into the truth of God as embodied by Jesus Christ, the word. And something we see in, in the prologue and in the whole of the Gospel of John is this truth embodied will be rejected and resented by people because people don't like to know the truth. Um, when, when, the tr- when, when the truth comes your way, sometimes it's like you know when you've got a migraine and then somebody turns a light on and turns the music up really loud, and you're like, ah, that's what it's like for some people. And we will meet people like that in the Gospel of John. Jesus comes along, the truth embodied, and people do this, or people do this and kill him and put him on a cross. And people may shut their ears and their eyes to the truth. They might even kill the messenger, kill the truth itself, but they can't actually kill the truth, can they? The truth remains. You can't destroy the truth by refusing to listen to the voice that is speaking it. The truth will always catch up in the end. But for those who accept Jesus, we see in the gospel as it, as it, as it um, unplays, they will be set free. Remember what he said to the crowd of Jews who believed in him. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Part of human nature is fear of the unknown. I remember once being on a flight um, from Bangkok to London and it was in the middle somewhere in that big long stretch of 10 hours or whatever and it was stormy outside and the plane was shaking and I started worrying, what if the plane crashes? And, and the fear started building up in me and I started thinking about the plane and, and every time I felt the plane move down and up, I thought, is this going to happen now? This is the unknown playing in my head. I have no real reason, logical reason to think this is going to happen. Little children often work themselves into a state because they don't understand. Mummy walks out the door, they think mummy's abandoning them. At night in their bedroom, they're scared of the dark because they're worried of what's lurking in the shadows. This is human nature, fear of the unknown. Jesus sets us free from estrangement from God He liberates us because when we see him, we see God and the unknown is removed. He liberates us from our fears and our weaknesses. Jesus Christ, the true way at word made flesh, is the greatest liberator to have ever lived. And to conclude quickly, the word made flesh is glorious. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus manifested glory wherever he went. John saw it with his own eyes. When he turned water into wine, uh, in John 2.11, it says this was the first of many times that Jesus revealed his glory. And this glory comes from Jesus, from God. Comes to Jesus from God. It's not that he seeks glory for himself from the crowds watching him, but he seeks glory for God, the one who sent him. It is the God the Father who glorifies God the Son. 
It is the glory of God that Martha will see when Lazarus is raised. One writer said it like this, The glory that was on Jesus, that clung about him, that shone through him, that acted in him, is the glory of God. Yet at the same time, Jesus' glory is his own. At the end of his life, he prays that God would glorify him with the glory that he had before the world began. His radiance is his and by his right. And the most exciting thing about Jesus' glory is that he shares it with his apostles and his disciples and you and me. We see that he transmitted his glory to his disciples. The glory that God gave him has been given to them. Jesus shares in the glory of God and the disciples share in the glory of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see the the glory of God manifest itself visibly several times. In the desert before the giving of the manna, the children of Israel looked towards the wilderness and the glory of God appeared in the cloud. Exodus 16.10. Before the giving of the Ten Commandments, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Exodus 24.16. When the tabernacle had been built and set up, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40.34. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priests could not enter in to minister, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 1 Kings 8.11. When Isaiah had his vision in the temple, he heard the angels singing that the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6.3. Ezekiel in his ecstasy saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 1 verse 28. Time and time again, the glory of the Lord came when God was very close. The glory of the Lord is the presence of God. And when Jesus came to earth, the splendour of God was visible in him. And the heart of the splendour was grace and truth, and most of all love. In Jesus we discovered that God's glory and his grace, and his truth, and his love were all the same thing, tied up together in Jesus. So let us pray in thanks that the glory of God is not that of a corrupt tyrant, but the beauty and charm and splendour and grace and truth before which we fall lost in wonder, love and praise. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the scandalous, dangerous, exciting, profound truth that the word became flesh. We pray that we will know uh, this truth in our hearts and and pursue um, Jesus in everything that we do. We pray that we will learn what it is to um, receive your grace and know your grace and and be grace-transformed people. We pray that we will um, be obsessed with the truth that is in Jesus. We pray that we will know your glory. Amen.